You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Oh my goodness, if you own real estate, you are not going to want to miss this interview. I'm Kathy Fetke. Welcome to The Real Wealth Show. I just talked taxes and I couldn't stop listening and asking questions. Taxes don't tend to be the most exciting topic, but I'll tell you what, I think you'll be really excited after listening to this interview. There are so many deductions you can take that maybe your CPA doesn't know about, uh, didn't take for you. And if you want to write that check to the IRS, if you like the job they're doing, then fine. Um, Don't listen to the show. But if you think maybe you'd rather have that money in your pocket to invest the way you want to, maybe into a charity that you believe in, maybe to support family members or to buy more property, then tune in. It's a great interview. And I've got Toby here with us again. You can get referrals to great accountants who understand this stuff at realwealthshow.com. Just click on the resources tab. Toby will be on there. And again, he's here with us today on the Real Wealth Show. So welcome back. Hey, it's always fun to talk to you. Well, it's it's usually hard to get uh, uh, anyone in the tax business to talk to you at this time of year. Uh, But you just said before the interview that there's still maybe a tiny window of opportunity to to make some changes on your 2022 returns. Is that right? Yeah. So in the tax world, there's, there's kind of this misconception that you have to have everything done by April 15th on your personal, or if it's a, you know, S corps, it might be a little bit earlier on partnerships, things like that, that there's all these, there's always this idea that we have to get things completely done by April 15th. And that's just not the case. Uh, there's still some things that we can do if we file extensions. Now for people that are trying to get a refund, they don't want to wait. And so sometimes they'll jump in, they'll, they'll file their return by that initial deadline. And I always think of it like this. If you're, high school teacher said, you have a, you have a project due on Friday, but if you wanted to wait two more weeks, you could, and you could turn it in two weeks late and it's still treated as though it's on time. That's what our tax, you know, that's what we have when you do an extension, you actually have until uh, October 15th as an individual until September 15th, if you're certain types of businesses, but what it does is it keeps the door open for things like cost segregations for, paying into a solo 401k that will still lower your 2022 taxes. And this is true even if you got rid of properties. Like there's, um, for example, let's say you sold something in 2022 and a cost segregation would actually save you money. And I'll go over what all that stuff is. Uh, You could still do, you could still put a study in all the way up until you file your return. And, uh, or if you have, a solo 401k, you can still make employer contributions, which is 25% of whatever your wages are. You can still make that contribution up until you file your return, including extensions. So if you haven't filed your return, it's a good idea to file that extension and then take a look over the summer and see whether there's some things that would lower your 2022 taxes. And a lot of it has to do with how you are doing in 2023. Like if I have a lot of cash, if I'm doing great in 2023, where I have a lot of money in my account, maybe I want to make some additional contributions or take a, you know, uh, put in a contribution, on, for example, uh, into my 401k. If I have some extra money, it'll lower my 2022 taxes. And I might, maybe I'm in a position where I can do that. Or you're looking at your taxes going, you know what? 
2023 is not shaping up so great. I would get, I would love to pay less in 2022. So I have some extra cash. So I'm not giving it to the tax man. You could still do those things up until uh, you file that extent, uh, you file that final return, including your extension, which is for individuals, October 15th. Yeah. A lot of people think that uh, there it's a mistake to file an extension, but in so many ways there are benefits. For example, if you're invested in a lot of syndications, mm-hmm. oftentimes those K-1s come late and then you have to refile. So just wait, because in some cases I know in our syndications where there's layers and it takes a while to get that K-1. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Is there any disadvantage to extending? No, this is the thing is that I don't understand why people don't extend. The only time that you file on time is if you have a loan or something that's contingent on your return, or you have a refund that you're due and you want that money earlier. Otherwise, there's really not a reason to do it. Uh, What you just said with the syndications is what we see all the time is people restate their K-1s. And if you, you know, so if somebody's in a rush, like right now, everybody's in a rush, they're trying to get their K-1s out. And that syndication may choose to do a cost seg. And in a cost seg, you can actually, even after you filed a return, it's that the deadline is the return plus extension, what you could have taken. So they could go back and they could actually restate and create a situation, for example, where there's losses being passed down in greater amounts because they do a cost seg. And if they do that, and you've already filed using the first K-1 they sent you, now you have to amend. And so I would rather just wait. I would rather mm-hmm. just wait until the last second to file my actual return. Now, your your taxes are due on April 15th, but your return isn't due until October 15th. So, you know, again, there's always this play of what do I think I'm going to owe? Is there anything I can do about it? Uh, if, if, if somebody hears this early enough and even for 2022, for example, I could do a health savings account. I could, I could put money into an IRA. There's some things I could do to still lower my taxes that have a date of, of April 15th, but I don't have to do that final return until October 15th. And you really ought to be thinking about that. Uh, a few years back, the brokerage houses started reporting, uh, on options, for example. And they hadn't been doing that before. In the first year they rolled it out, they had to restate all their, their, their statements they sent out to taxpayers. They screwed them up. Well, anybody that had filed on time, in theory, I'm putting air quotes if, if you're mm-hmm. listening to this, on time, which is this, this hypothetical April 15th, those people all had to re- amend their returns or face the idea that the numbers that were reported to the IRS were going to be different than what was on their return and they were going to get audited. You know, it might be a correspondence audit where they say, hey, the numbers don't match up and we're wondering why. And it may be in a situation where you end up owing taxes and now you have penalties and interest. Um, it's just so much easier for me, for for, 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 for people like me uh, who do taxes to, to have that extra time so that for our clients, we can do the best job possible. And you have enough time to look at it and say, hey, you know, if I'm working with you, Kathy, I'm, I'm looking at it saying, Hey, I see a lot of pro, you know passive income that came in. Hey, how is 2023 shaping up? Hey, do we want to accelerate some depreciation for 2022 and wipe out some of that passive income? Because we could still do it up until we file your return. But it gives me the ability to have that, uh, that planning opportunity. Uh, whereas we shut the door on ourselves on so many things when we file that return and think that it's done and walk away from it and then start thinking of the next year. 
So when is the best time to get advice from your CPA? Because obviously March and April are not the time, but that's when everybody probably calls you. So if you really want some good advice and and not a rushed and stressed out and over-caffeined CPA, when when should we be talking to you? Uh, Quarterly, all year round. It's never a time where you're sitting here just because there's a tax return due in theory, there could be tax returns due every quarter, depending on whether you're using uh, what kind of year ends you're using. Like if you have C-Corps, if you have a uh, foundation, you might be looking at May. If you have a corporation, it could be any, it's it's the, what's the third month, uh, the 15th of the third month following the end of its tax year. So you could be, you could be doing tax returns in June. Like there's all these different deadlines and then you can extend them. So all of a sudden you're looking at December, November, October. Um, it, it, it tax time really is something that you should look at as a, as a continuum. It's all the time. And you should just be looking and saying, are there any things we could do to better our position or to defer something or to recognize something depending on my scenario? So for example, Kathy, you're a real estate professional. So your passive losses become ordinary. There's no such thing as a passive loss from your real estate. And I should be very specific about that. Your rental real estate is going to be treated as ordinary. Your situation is going to be very different than somebody who's sitting on perhaps some passive carry forwards. And what we see that gets missed so often is accountants who do not do real estate day in and day out don't realize that, for example, on a syndication, when you exit a syndication, you have capital gains, that's considered passive capital gains. And that just blows accountants' mind because they're like, there is no such thing. No, it keeps its nature. So if I have capital gains from a passive activity, me, I'm an investor in one of your syndications, for example, uh, and I am not a real estate professional, uh, I have the option to buy other things that have that create passive loss, to, passive losses to offset that passive capital gain. And that oftentimes is completely misunderstood by accountants and by virtue, then the investor misses up and they don't even realize, wait a second. Uh, we always think about 1031 exchanges, right? We say like, oh, I can just keep kicking the can down the road. Well, this is called a lazy man's 1031 exchange. When you say, you know what, I'm just going to buy more real estate and create more passive losses, usually through cost segregation, or if you're working with the syndicator that uses cost segregation, I know that in that first year, I'm going to create this big passive loss. Okay. Well, if I'm exiting a passive activity and I have passive capital gains, that passive loss will eliminate that tax in many cases. All I have to do is buy additional. I should be continuing to invest. Once you add that dimension to your investing, all of a sudden you're focused so much more on what do I get to keep as opposed to this reactionary tax game. And the only way you do that is if you have a relationship with your tax professional and you're meeting on a consistent basis. So I say quarterly. Brilliant. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because I think we were working, we were changing this year, but we were working with a, a firm that really didn't especially specialize in real estate. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? Me. Everybody. And <laughs> but I, I should know better. Um, and they didn't take the deductions we thought they did on, on the, um, what did you call it? The cost seg yep. and, and the Trump 
taxes. So, so let's talk about that. I know there's some changes this year to some of the tax law from last year. Uh, and people are worried about that, that they're not going to get the same write-offs that they, this year that they got last year. Uh, so are, are we seeing some big changes in tax law in 2023? Well, for real estate investors, the big one was uh, there's something called uh, 168K, also known as bonus depreciation. And in it, it's, it's often misunderstood and they think it's just real estate, but it's not. It's actually personal property or, or it's assets that have less than a 20-year life. So if it's 20 years or less, you could accelerate the depreciation. Instead of writing something off over 15 years, you can take 80% of it. So it went from 100% in 2022 down to 80%. So everybody's like, oh my gosh, this is this is less. Well, hold on for a second. You're getting 80% in year one on any of those items, my five-year, my seven-year, my 15-year property. And I'm just going to stop right now and say to people that are listening to this, that are under the idea that real estate's a 27 and a half year or 39-year asset, that's what a lot of accountants are forcing you to do. But that's not an appropriate methodology. You're supposed to look and break the the improvement, the building that you improved. Let's say you have a fourplex. You should be going in and figuring out how much did you pay for the carpeting? How much did you pay for appliances? How much did you pay for counters? Did you do land improvement? Did you put in a driveway, a fence? Did you put in shrubbery? Did you do these things? Because those are not 27 and a half year property. Those are 15, seven and five year property which means you're writing them off much faster, but you could accelerate that th- those already accelerated deductions and write off an extra 80%. And so what changed from 2022 to 2023 is that number went from 100% bonus depreciation. I could write off, for example, if I have carpeting that I put in for $100,000 in an apartment complex, I could take a $100,000 deduction last year. Now I take a $80,000 deduction. And then I write off the amount, the extra 20,000 over five years. So it's not like it just disappeared. It's just now I have a $84,000 deduction in 2023. That would have been a $100,000 deduction in 2022. Um, so it, it didn't just implode. It didn't change overnight. It's just that one little piece got altered. And people think that cost segregation went away. It did not. And this is what's so weird, Kathy. I don't know how much of a tax geek you are, but... Not enough, apparently. <laughs> well, this is... That's what, why I've got you. <laughs> this is... Like, you could you could test me on this because I'm not looking at the form. But uh, when you... Let's say that you bought a building or you bought a single family residence or whatever. You bought a piece of real estate and you bought it two years ago, three years ago, last year for all I care. The 100% bonus depreciation is triggered by the year that it was put into service and it was purchased. So that 100% is still applicable to you, even if you do the cost seg this year. If I change a building that I bought three years ago from its 27 and a half year, now I'm going to treat it as a cost seg. I'm going to break it into its components. When you do that, that's called a form 3115. And it says... You're changing from an impermissible method to a permissible method. In other words, when you do the 27 and a half year, it's an impermissible method, but the IRS lets you do it because it costs you money and it saves the treasury money. So they're like, ah, if you want to write it off over 27 and a half years, go ahead. You're supposed to write off 
you know, property over its useful life, which is five, seven, 15 year, about, about 40% of most, you know, commercial properties are, are, uh, it would be in those categories, the five, seven or 15 year in a, an apartment complex or a single family, it might be 30, 35%. It's a big chunk of a building. So if you bought a building for a million bucks, you should in that first year probably be generating, um, somewhere in a 200 to $250,000 deduction in year one, depending on the land value, right? So let's say you bought a million dollar building and 200,000 was land. We can't depreciate land, but there's $800,000 sitting there of improvement of that 800,000, probably 850 or 250 of it is in those categories. And you're just sitting on a massive deduction and your accountant says, oh, we're just gonna write it off over 27 and a half years. Don't listen to them, right? Accelerate that. And then their accountant's going to say, oh, but you're not a real estate professional. You, you know, that would just be carryover loss. Well, hold on for a second. That loss doesn't go away. It carries forward and you could use it against things like if I sold a property that had that it was a, from a syndication where I'm passive or I sell another property that's passive real estate, like a, I have some single families and I don't 1031 exchange them. Those profits could be offset by that passive loss carry forward. And I'm like, why are you giving that up? Why are you voluntarily paying something in tax that you don't have to pay? Like you're literally, let's say I had $100,000 of profit and you have this loss carry forward in a state like California, you might be looking at, uh, what would that be? Uh, let's see here in the top bracket, you're at 20% plus 3.8% net investment income tax plus income tax of 13%. You're paying 43%, whatever that is, that's... Let's, let, let me add that up. 20 plus 3.8 plus 13. So you're at 36, 37%, right? That's a pretty big tax hit. If I could avoid that, why am I not avoiding that? And your accountants a lot of times don't even give you the option to avoid it. It's a big chunk. So can you go back and revise the documents and get those deductions? Well, you can't amend a previous year's return to get the cost seg, at least not to mm. the best of my knowledge. But what you can do is for last year, or let's say I bought a property in 2021 and I never cost segged it. I can choose this year to change my tax methodology, my method of accounting for it and break it into its components. I can do that. But what I can't do is amend a 2021 return. So I could take the, re the, 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 the deduction in 2023. I could choose to do that. Or actually, I could do 2022. I could make my change of, of accounting last year because I still have up until I file my tax return or until my extension is due. I could I could make the change and take all that deduction in 2022, and I get 100% bonus depreciation because the property was put into service in you know previous years. So uh, even if I've had a property for five, seven, eight years. I could still change its accounting methodology and take that deduction, boom, either now or last year. I still, I, I'm in that weird zone where I could choose between 2022 and 2023 to take it. And some people might say, you know what? I had a great year in 2022. I was killing it. And I don't want to pay a bunch of tax on that. If Can I offset some of it? And the answer might be a resounding yes. A lot of times, I'll give you a weird one. People sell a property and don't realize they could have cost-segged it. 
and they they don't own the property anymore, but you can actually go back and still cost seg it if they sold it, let's say in 2022, I could still do a cost seg on that property if it benefits me. And I'll give you a real life case. Uh, it was a it was a warehouse uh, that was sold. It was three point eight million. They purchased it for for two point eight. So there was seven eight hundred thousand dollars of profit. The tax savings on doing a cost seg after the fact was seventy eight thousand dollars in their pocket. Not an extra deduction, but that was the tax savings. And they had talked to a tax person who said, "Oh, cost segs are too expensive, or it, it's not going to really benefit you." The only way you know is if you actually run the numbers and see, does it benefit me? And it doesn't take that much effort to look and see, does it benefit you? I don't know. Let's see. Get, get your pencil out. <laughs> okay. Big question here that uh, you know I, I'm confused about, but if let's say I did invest in a syndication in an apartment, got tremendous tax deductions that year one, the property's fixed up and sold isn't there the recapture taxes at that point that I, I have to pay those back? You, you do. You have two types of recapture. So you have your typical recapture if I'm depreciating structural components over 27 and a half years. I would recapture that at my ordinary rate up to 25%. So everybody always says 25%, but it's technically it could be less. Uh, and then you have the personal property, the 1245 property, which is the five, seven or 15 year property. And it's whatever its value is on the date of sale. And then the recapture would be calculated based off of the amount of depreciation you took and how much it's worth. The recapture would be what it's worth. Uh, so let's say that I held a, a building for five years and I sold it. My five-year property, there'd be zero recapture because it has a zero book value. So for example, uh, carpeting, I always use carpeting because it's five-year property and everybody knows carpeting gets nasty after a few years. If you do not do a cost seg, you have to recapture whatever you wrote off of that carpet. Let's say you had a building for that you held for 10 years and we know that carpeting isn't worth anything. The IRS makes you pay 25% on the value that you wrote off of that carpet. If you cost seg it, there'd be no recapture on carpet. It would just, it would be ignored and it would just be capital gains. So it's always important to have your, you know, I'm not a cost seg engineer, but those people are worth their weight in gold because you sell a property. Yeah, there might be some recapture, but it's significantly less. And so for example, in when I gave you the, uh, the, the warehouse that we did the cost seg on after the fact, that was its that was the factor was the type of property that was in that was was in that building was a lot of land improvements and that was 15 year property and just the value of some of those items from a recapture standpoint lowered the amount of the total tax a lot of it was 5 year property a lot of it was removable stuff but it, when you actually did the numbers you're like whoa i don't have to pay recapture on a bunch of this it's going to end up in being long term capital gains which sounds exciting. It's just the difference between 25% and 20%, but it adds up when you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I'm a, just a good old buy and hold investor, old school. I just prefer to hold. And if I sell 1031 and then you're not paying that, you know, a lot of people have been flipping, basically flipping 
property or flipping apartments, which is mm-hmm. d- just a different game than buy and hold. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, am I wrong for thinking that, that it would just be wiser to 1031 instead of pay that recapture? So a flipper can't 1031. If exactly. You buy a property with the intent to sell it and not for a long-term appreciation and for cash flow, then you fall into that category where you're, you're not allowed to do installment sales or 1031s. You're, you are a car dealer. You're buying the house and putting it on your car lot and selling it, right? Yeah. You never bought it for like, I am a buy and holder. I buy everything with the intent that I'll never sell it. And if I do sell it, 1031 exchanges still allow us to defer the, the tax into new properties. And then all I have to do is is die at some point in the basis step <laughs> in my, my heirs get to rewrite it off. Like there's no other asset like it. Like, think about this. You can't write off stock. I bought a bunch of Microsoft stock. I bought a hundred thousand dollars of Microsoft stock. I can't write any of it off. And then, you know, if, if Microsoft goes up to 300 bucks and I die, my heirs get it and tax free new basis is 300,000. Now let's use real estate. I buy a hundred thousand dollar house which if you can find them, good luck, right? But let's mm-hmm. take a buy we still are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, in the Midwest, right? You're going to find mm-hmm. some good, good good, stuff. But let's say you buy a $100,000 house and it goes up to 300000 I could sell it and buy more property. Let's say I buy three more properties at 100000 each and I don't have to pay any tax. It's great. Uh, and then those go up in value and I, and, and, you pa- and I pass away and those properties are now worth 900000 because I have more properties They've all appreciated nicely. My heirs, not only do they not have to pay any capital gains on it, but they get to write off the $900,000 again. Can't do that. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's to me just like, like, I don't want to sell unless I'm 1031. And I know a lot of people were, and I always confused me a little bit. So are we, should we be concerned about the 1031? I know it keeps coming up. It sounds like um, Biden's uh, proposing again in his newest budget to end it um, and the carried interest tax break. Should should we be worried? Because it never does seem to make it like it, it always seems to stay, but maybe not this time. I mean, what are your thoughts? I'm always worried about it, right? I see it come up. It's a bargaining ship. I think it's a red herring, but I think it's their leverage. Mm-hmm. Do what I say or I'm going to take away this huge benefit that you guys all enjoy. Mm is what they're doing. They're like, it's kind of like taking the football. If you're mad at everybody and you take the football and go home, right? I'm going to take away your, the thing, the one thing that you really need to play the game. And in real estate, you need that 1031 exchange. It's what really makes things that much better. That Mm -hmm. in depreciation, being able to write off this, the structure changes the game. It's, there's no other asset class like it. Uh, And do I think it's going to go away? No, but I think it's going to be their big bargaining chip. Um, Although, you know, it used to be you could you could do you could 1031 exchange machinery and collectibles and things like that. And they took that away. Uh, It was actually President Trump's administration that took that away under the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. And they got rid of miscellaneous itemized deductions, too. Like they really hurt some people, but they kept the 1031 exchange for real estate. You know, obviously, President Trump was a real estate guy. So that was Mm -hmm. something that was probably really important to him. Is it is it on the chopping block? It's always on the chopping block. Always. Do I think it's going to go away? No, but I think it's their big bargaining chip. The carried interest, I think, is kind of moronic anyway. Like, why would you let somebody who works and manages money pay 
20% on all of their work. When you and I have to pay, yeah, we work, we have to pay 37%, you know? Yeah. That one's just not fair. (laughs) I just look at that going, that's just flat out. They, they, they paid to get the politicians in and they're getting a sweet (laughs) deal. I don't really like that, you know, and of course I'm going to get hate mail from all the hedge fund managers, but you know, that that doesn't make sense to me. They don't need, they don't need a tax break. I know people say that about real estate investors too, but uh, you know, if you want to keep the real estate industry thriving, there's, we could do a whole nother show on that and we're almost out of time, but there's been a lot of evidence that having the 1031 helps improve neighborhoods, make sure there's not slumlords, you know, all of that. If somebody is going to pay taxes for selling, but they can't afford to fix up the property, it's just going to sit there and, and get old. Kathy, I think that the world needs us individual investors. There's the Black Rocks out there and they owe their duty to their shareholders, the investors, the shareholders. You and I don't are not beholden to anybody. We can do what we think is right. Mm-hmm. And in this country right now, we need landlords that are not making decisions just because of the economics. They're making decisions because it's the right thing to do. So if you and I get a rent, a tenant, and we're looking at it saying, hey, the uh, property manager says you could raise rent uh, 10%, and we can look at our rent rolls and say, you know what? Uh, Do not raise the rents on these folks. They've been in there for 10 years or five years or whatever the number is, uh, or they're a veteran or they're a little old lady that's been widowed or whatever. We can actually make that decisions. Whereas a large institution has the duty to their, uh, of generating the return and they may not, they may be handcuffed. They may not be able to make human decisions. I think people, I think that the world uh, and especially real estate needs folks like us and the tax code is built to incentivize you to do that. And so I think that is why those things exist is it helps people, the little guys like us go out there and buy properties and compete with the big guys who get these ridiculously low interest rate loans and can go out there and, you know, and and they can overbid on properties. We've all experienced it. We've all been it. We've had them come into our backyard and buy everything at 20% above, uh, you know, asking prices. And here in Vegas, I remember how frustrating it was. Uh, yeah. 2009 and 10, 11 and 12, how these guys would just come in and overpay for everything. Yeah. Uh, really frustrating. This is what we need. We need tools like this to allow us to compete. And the uh, institutional funds have right now, I think they own three or 4% of single family rentals, but their plan is to increase to 40% by 2030. So that's why, again, I'm aggressively, aggressively trying to encourage people to get in on the single family rental or buy your home before a hedge fund does. Yep. Even though we do have a fund, but of course I'm going to treat it differently than, than maybe uh, wall street would. Oh, well, Toby, there's always, always, always so much I want to talk to you about, but you guys do ongoing training. Um, if anybody wants to find out about how to learn more about all the, all the nerdy stuff that I think, I think now I am technically a nerd. I thought this was really fascinating and interesting. Who doesn't want to save taxes? Uh, you can go to realwealth.com 
realwealthshow.com as well. It's easy to remember, realwealthshow.com and click on the resources tab and you'll find uh, Toby and his company there on the website. And this and our shows and webinars are all uploaded there. It's free to join. And once you join, you'll get information on their upcoming classes and trainings and seminars. There's so many, so many good ones that will just sort of blow your mind. I mean, again, if your CPA doesn't know how to take those deductions, then at least you need, you need to know how to tell them what to do or find a CPA who does. And I, I will say I'm guilty of it. We just discovered our, our accountant didn't take those deductions, just like you said. So we're going to have to, to figure that one out. So I'll be talking to you soon. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show again. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.